All right, we're back in our study in the book of Genesis today. And uh, most of the adults in our congregation uh, have been married and blessed with children. And I wonder if you think back when you first found out you were going to have that uh, first child, how you felt. Uh, Did you have a sense of wonder and joy and expectation? And then uh, that sense of increased responsibility that all of a sudden was going to come upon you. Well, our study today reveals to us the happy occasion of the first human being that was born into the world. Adam and Eve must have felt a deep sense of joy and anticipation, along with the consciousness of God's mercy and grace. They were now fulfilling God's intention for them to multiply and fill the earth with humanity. And although they had disobeyed the Lord in the garden, they were cast out of the garden. God did forgive them, and now they would experience a long and productive life. However, in this story of life outside the Garden of Eden... We also see the beginning of that conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent back in chapter 3, verse 15, where God said he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That begins to play out right here in the very next chapter, and the very first two people who were born into the world. Cain, who promised so much hope for his parents, maybe even the hope of that one who would come and crush the serpent's head, became actually the first product of Satan's seed, rejected the counsel of God, and murdered his own brother. This man takes front stage in showing us how quickly The sinful seed infected the human race. We go to the New Testament and we find that Cain is mentioned there two times. And in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, I want to read to you that selection. And this is what it says. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil... Are manifest. There's the two seeds, the children of God, the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, the seed of Satan, And murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So here we have the unrighteous work of Cain and uh, the murdering of his brother who was righteous. And we see the two seeds working out even there. And then also in the book of Jude... The author condemns those who are unbelieving rebels against the Lord, and he pronounces a woe upon them, and the reason being 
For they have gone the way of Cain, the way of unrighteousness. And in contrast to that, Abel in the New Testament is identified by Jesus as the first righteous prophet whose blood was shed by the unrighteous and his works are called righteous and his offering to God was one of faith that resulted in his righteousness. The way of Cain is described for us in this fourth chapter of Genesis. And we're going to look at two main points. We're only going to be able to cover part of one of them today. And that is this. The way of Cain is the way of the unrighteous. Those who put their trust, uh, that refuse to put their trust in God, those who reject God's counsel and refuse to take responsibility for their actions. We also find in this passage, we haven't got there yet, but the way of Cain is also the way of humanistic civilization. As we see his line developing apart from God and ends up in the last couple of verses here, verses 23 and 24, with a willful, uh, challenging boast of Lamech. The way of Cain is the broad way that leads to destruction as opposed to the narrow way that leads to life everlasting. And we need to consider whose way uh, we're in, whose way we're following. So let's ask God's blessing as we look into this chapter today. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you thankful that we do not have to be stuck in the way of Cain. We know, Lord, that all of us were actually born in that way the way of rebellion, the way of selfishness, the way of sin. And yet, Lord, through the blood of Christ, we can be redeemed from all that and walk in your ways, represented in the way of Abel. So, Lord, as we look at this negatively today and we see the way of the unrighteous, we pray, Lord, there would be nobody here today that is in that way because they don't know Christ as their Savior. And, Lord, for those of us who are in your ways and walking in righteousness, help us to remember uh, that uh, we need to avoid all these issues that caused Cain to be unrighteous and demonstrate that in his life. So bless your word to our hearts, we ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So today we're going to look at these verses that we read. We're going to see here that the way of Cain is the way of the unrighteous. And the character and actions of Cain teach us numerous truths about the unrighteous in God's sight. And the first thing that we see here in the first five verses is that the unrighteous diminish the worship of God. Now, as we begin here, we see that Adam knew his wife Eve and that one man one-woman union that God sanctioned in the Garden of Eden. And I'm sure that you're aware that that verb there, to know in this context, is a euphemism for the most intimate act of marriage designed by God as one of his good creations. It's a sacred act indicating the deepest knowledge between a couple, and it's exclusive to them alone. This union is supposed to be personal, pleasurable, procreative, and pleasing in the sight of God. 
And it was never meant to be what has become in modern society. Something vulgar, sensual, self-gratifying, and casual. That is not God's will. And of course, it is the means by which the world is populated by humankind. And Adam and Eve were fulfilling one of God's purposes for their lives as they brought children into the world. And we have the description of the two sons, likely the first two that were born into the world, first two children. And uh, we're going to look into especially the life of Cain here, as that's what's being emphasized. Now, Cain, uh, the word, the name, sounds similar to the verb Eve uses when she says, I have acquired a man or gotten a man from the Lord. The name Cain sounds like that verb. And this is the, the first mention here by a person of God's name, Lord, cap, all capital letters, Yahweh, Jehovah. And our author uh, uses that term and puts it, uh, so to speak, in the mouth of Eve to convey that God is the self-existing creator God, but also one who is personal and he becomes in grace everything that we need. And I think A. Eve realized this before the garden, through that time of, of rebellion, and now after as they begin to have a family. She's acknowledging that she sees God in this way, that it's through God's help and, and God's grace that they are able to have this child and God is fulfilling his purposes through this birth. And she's reminded of these things and she's thankful to God. Now, what is unusual here is that Eve says, I have acquired not a baby, not a child, but a man from the Lord. That means a grown man. It's the word ish. It's the word used in the creation story of God making the man and uh, uh, things of that nature. <clears throat> so it may be she's looking to the future in realization, this child's going to grow up, this child's going to be a man, and this assures that, that mankind will continue as God promised. It's also a throwback on Adam's face back in chapter uh, 3 and verse 20 that he realized although originally the woman came from the man, now humanity, mankind, is going to come through the woman by childbirth. So again, uh, the issue of, of faith is raised here. Now Cain grew up to be a farmer, a tiller of the soil, which of course was necessary for survival and something God said that they were going to have to do. But it also ties him closely to the curse that God placed upon the ground. Adam was going to be a tiller of the soil and he was going to work by the sweat of his brow to get it to bring forth and produce now, our second child comes along, and he's named Abel. And there's no indication that there were any other children born between these two, so we assume that these two brothers uh, were in immediate contact with each other, no more than a year or two apart, so very close in time, and we would suspect maybe close in relationship. And his name means breath, vapor, or vanity. Now, it's unclear how, uh, how deeply we should interpret that, but perhaps it foreshadows Abel's 
untimely and premature death. And later in Scripture, it becomes a word uh, that is a metaphor for that which is insubstantial and fleeting away. And in comparison to how long everybody else lived in the genealogy you're going to be looking at, uh, Abel lived a very short time because his life was taken from him. It's also interesting that although Jesus named Abel among the prophets, Abel doesn't say a word in this whole narrative. As a matter of fact, there's no words of Abel anywhere in the Bible. But if he was a prophet of God, it seems to me that God was revealing himself to him, and whatever he revealed, Abel would be sharing with other people. Maybe as time went on, Cain didn't like that. We don't know. That's just kind of conjecture. And unlike Cain, Abel becomes a keeper of sheep. He's a shepherd. Another profession necessary to the sustenance of life, the sheep give clothing. Uh, It's not clear yet whether they actually ate the sheep. That probably comes later. But the two brothers begin to exercise dominion over the creation of God in these professions that are necessary for life. Now, a day comes in verse 3, where the two sons bring an offering to the Lord. And in the process of time. Now that speaks of the passing of time, but also to a designated time, such as a specific number of days, weeks, months, even a year. So it would seem to indicate to us that by this time, uh, there were regular times where the uh, where the family would come to the Lord and bring an offering and worship him. Now, we don't have any indication of how often that was or what was brought normally, but we can assume that perhaps God revealed to them the necessity of this, and Adam and Eve led in this and led their family to this place on a regular basis, and they worshiped the Lord. <clears throat> And a day comes when these two sons, we assume they're grown men now, and they come and they bring an offering to the Lord. And the offerings were brought in connection to their profession. Cain brings some of the fruit of his labors, perhaps a gift of grain or vegetables. Uh, This was something that was allowed in the law of God that comes uh, centuries later. You bring a grain offering to the Lord, an offering of the first fruits. So the offering itself was not something that would be unacceptable. And Abel brought from the firstborn of his lambs, but only one of these is acceptable to God. Because we're told uh, in verse 4, the last part of verse 4, the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> now, some believe that Cain, uh, his offering was rejected because he did not bring a lamb to be sacrificed. But the problem with that is we, we don't know what was expected to be brought. And the word used for offering here does not mean a sacrifice or the offering of a slain am- animal. So we don't really know if Abel slew that animal. Uh, And uh, uh, the law comes later 
and describes blood sacrifice, things of that nature. But the problem is here, I think, the attitude in which the gift was brought, as well as the type of the offering, but that's not the main thing. We see here that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, some of the fruit of the ground. It doesn't say first fruit. First fruit was the first ripe grains that were brought to God later on um, in faith and trust and thanksgiving that God had brought into harvest. Here's the first part of it. So this is a promise that the rest of the harvest is going to come in, and uh, we're thankful that God has brought it to us. So they brought it in thanksgiving and praise and faith. But he didn't bring the first fruits. He just brought some of what he had produced. And that may indicate something about his attitude. Now, in contrast to this, Abel brought the firstborn of the flock and he brought the fat thereof. Now, that doesn't mean that he slew the lamb, took the fat out, and gave that to God. What that simply means is he brought him the fattest. He brought him the best. So he brought him the firstborn, which later on the Bible says is what you're supposed to give to the Lord. That might have been conveyed to him by God. He brings the firstborn, but not just any firstborn. He brings the best. And he offers his best to the Lord. So it means he had to go out. He had to be selective. He had to... Uh, check his flocks and see which of those lambs were the best ones. And he brings um, perhaps some of them to the Lord out of thanksgiving and trust and faith. Okay, Cain's gift then seems to be a token gift. Abel brings his best. Cain just brings some of what he's produced. And the Lord's response to the gifts reveals a problem within Cain himself. The Lord respected Abel and his offering. Now notice the word order here. It doesn't say he respected the offering and Abel. He says he respected Abel and his offering. So the Lord's not just looking at the offering that's brought, but the person who brings it and the attitude of the person who brings it. And the gift really reflects the attitude. And uh, we've already discussed that the type of gift that Abel brought uh, came from a heart that was right with God. God sees this. He accepts the offering. But conversely, in verse 5, he did not respect Cain and his offering. doesn't say he did not respect the offering, and Cain, but Cain and his offering. So his offering reflected something about his attitude in his heart that God could not accept. And of course, God looks upon your heart, your mind, your innermost being. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. All right, so the Lord's response tells us something about the heart of Cain and the reflection of his attitude uh, in that gift. Now, I want to take you to Hebrews 11.4. Because if you remember from your own reading or studies, Abel is in Hebrews chapter 11. 
the Hebrews Hall of Fame. And we have an indication here of why his offering was accepted. It says in Hebrews 11.4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Why? Because he brought it in humility and faith, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. He wasn't self-righteous. He was righteous because his trust and faith was in God and God alone. And God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. So God testified of his gifts that they were acceptable because he brought them in faith, and faith is always accounted for his righteousness with God. That's why Abel was, his sacrifice was accepted. And incidentally, the New Testament word there, the excellent sacrifice, that is the word of blood sacrifice. So that may indicate that he did uh, offer that lamb up as a substitution for himself. We're not positive of that, but that may indicate it. So again, the idea of the substitutionary atonement coming before God and worship is there. Now, Cain's gift diminished the worship of God because it was not offered in faith. And this demonstrates that he was not trusting God for the produce of the land, but his own hard work. He was not really thanking and praising the Lord, but really kind of showing off what he had been able to accomplish. And Cain's reaction further reveals his wrong attitude in the rest of verse 5. Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. That means his face. Uh, betrayed his anger. And God made us that way. He made us with facial expressions that you can read. Now, we at times can try to hide our facial expre- our, our feelings by our facial, but we're, we're not really very good at that. If somebody's upset and angry, it's really hard to put a face that's happy on. And so this is all coming out here. He, he is burning with anger. That's what the, the word anger means there. He's burning inside. He's enraged. Now, what's this tell us about Cain and his offering? Well, uh, he was lifted up in pride. He was envious of his brother. He was mad at God for not accepting his gift. All kinds of things were going on inside of him that were wrong and causing him to be angry. If he was really interested in worshiping the Lord that day and being right with God and doing what God wanted him, don't you think he would have started asking some questions? Well, Lord, why didn't you accept my sacrifice? What's going on here? What's wrong? How did I I fail and what I brought? But there's nothing like that here. His response shows a heart problem. And the unrighteous diminished the worship of God Uh, by bringing him what they think will please him or appease him, but they take pride in the very gifts that they bring. They're like the Pharisees who proclaimed how righteous they were because they fasted, they prayed, uh, they tithe right down to the minutest uh, uh, herb, they brought the appropriate sacrifices but they went around with their noses stuck up in the air. 
They trusted in their own works for acceptance. The righteous, on the other hand, come to God in humility, faith, and thanksgiving for all he has done. We see something else here about Cain's actions in verses 6 to 8. And that is that the unrighteous ignore God's counsel and his warnings. Very unwise. The Lord now confronts and advises Cain. And the Lord will confront us in his word when we have done the wrong thing. He did that with Adam and Eve. Now he's going to do it with Cain. And the Lord comes, verse 7, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So again, there's an issue here. There's a hard issue. And he asked Cain to think about his actions. Why do you feel this way? Why are you so upset? Why is your disposition changed? And this is framed in such a way that that Cain should have known that his attitude was wrong. And when you and I become angry, we would probably be wise to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. Why am I angry? Why am I so upset? Because anger is seldom righteous in nature. And this is the point that God is trying to bring out here. Um, What's your problem? If you don't think about the cause of your anger and deal with it, well, that's likely going to lead you to deeper sin. Then he asks you another question. If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you do the right thing, if you change your attitude, won't you be accepted? And what would be the right thing at this point? Well, it would, would be to change his mind. You know, as he thinks, how, you know, how do you really feel about God? What do you really think about him? Do you really love him? Do you really appreciate him? Or are you merely, merely trying to show him how good you are and how, how much you've been able to produce? And God says, if you do the right thing, then you're going to be accepted. Now, that's an interesting verb that um, uh, perhaps isn't quite getting the meaning here because the verb actually means to lift up. And the New American Standard Bible translated uh, this way, will not your countenance be lifted up? So what had happened to his countenance? It had fallen because he was angry, he was upset, he was mad. God said, we do the right thing, your countenance will lift up. Because you'll be in right relationship to God. So he's calling upon him to change his mind, to get his disposition right, and do the right thing. And then he gives him a warning if he does not do this in verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the very door. So he's warning him. You need to change your mind because if you don't, worse things are going to happen. Cain's in a very precarious position here. He's found, uh, he's, he's got to make a decision, a very important decision that may change the whole course of his life. And the verb to lie here actually means to crouch. So this is personifying sin like a wild animal in a crouching position, like a lion ready to pounce on his prey. 
The New Testament says the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So here again, we have a picture of perhaps that seed of the serpent crouching, ready to jump on you and to take over your life. And we don't want to be in that position. The Lord goes on to say, and its desire is for you. It desires to master you, to control you. And you're not allowed to let it do that. You need to control it. You rule over it. If you get your heart right, you can do that. But if you don't, that sin is going to pounce on you. It's going to take over you. And then you're going to do something even more uh, uh, wrong in the Lord's eyes. So uh, Cain needed to change his attitude, get his heart right, to trust God to help him to master those raging emotions in his breast. And if he doesn't, he's going to fall prey to even worse things. Well, the story continues in verse 8. <clears throat> what does Cain do? He ignores God. He goes his own way, does his own thing. He tries to assuage his feelings by further wrong actions. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass, they went out to this field. Now we would hope that if he goes to talk to his brother, he's going to get things right. But all of a sudden we find him in a field, all alone. How did they get to the field? Well, perhaps he said, well, brother, let's go out in the field. I want to talk to you. By this time, say these men are in their 20s, maybe their 30s, we don't know. I don't think it was probably that old, but by this time, they, they're going to have other siblings, aren't they? They're going to have brothers and sisters, mom and dad someplace. So let's go out of the field where nobody can see us. So premeditation, deceit. Let's go out in the field because I've got a plan in my head. And so he draws his brother out in the field where nobody can see them. And then Cain rose up with a high hand against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. Now, there are times where you probably feel like killing your brother or your sister, but you never will do it, will you? But imagine that. Imagine taking a, a club or a stone or something and hitting your sibling until they die. A heinous crime. Unabated by his brother. Unrighteous act of, of fratricide. The murder of your own brother. And the word brother, incidentally, as you read through here, is repeated six times to highlight the heinous nature of this crime. And so we see the unrighteous submit to their lower nature. They do what they want to do to assuage their wrong attitudes. And they will not listen to wise counsel. They choose their own way to resolve their problems. Now the Lord holds no power over them. They allow their sin to be their master, which leads to the next point. And that is that the unrighteous cover their sin rather than confess it. In verses 9 and 10. The Lord again confronts Cain, this time not to prevent sin, but to deal with it. 
In verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Well, this parallels God's search for Adam and Eve in the garden, doesn't it? When he cries out, where are you? Well, of course, God knew where they were. He knew where Abel was. But his purpose is to get Cain to confess his sin so that God can deal with it. And that's what God did with Abney. They were hiding from God. They tried to uh, uh, hide the consequences of their sin with the fig leaves. But eventually they confessed. They had to be punished and dealt with. They were cast out of the garden. But, but God didn't uh, uh, kill them. God uh, was gracious to them. And now they're doing the will of God. But what does Cain do? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He lies to God. And the list of his unrighteous acts grows longer and longer. The seed of the, seed of the serpent is taking root and controlling his life. He's going further and further. In a snide remark, am I my brother's keeper? Is further denial of his culpability. Obviously, he knew he was dead in the field someplace. And he claims to have no accountability for his brother's uh, uh, death after he's actually murdered him. So the unrighteous seal their feet because they will not confess their sin. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who covers a sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Cain's obtuse response to God's confrontation put him outside of the Lord's mercy and grace. And then the Lord reveals that he knows what Cain has done. And he again asks a question, what have you done? Same question he asked of Eve. What have you done? Do you realize the seriousness of your crime? Do you realize the outcome of this and what's going to happen? Because you did it and you won't even confess it? And he says, your brother's blood cries to me out of the ground. Innocent blood does not go unnoticed by God, although we think it does sometimes. It cries out for vengeance and retribution. And if it cries out for uh, uh, retribution of fratricide and murder and hatred, surely it cries out over infanticide. How much innocent blood has seeped into the soil of America yet we somehow think God's not going to notice it. Well, when the wicked refuse to see and confess their iniquity, uh, the iniquity of their ways, the only thing that they have to look forward to is the judgment of God. And we see here that the unrighteous deserve the just judgment of God because they will not confess their sins and seek God's forgiveness. So Cain receives now the first curse of God upon an individual in verse 11. So now you are cursed from the earth, the ground, the soil, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now, Adam and Eve were under the curse, they were experiencing the result of the curse, but 
God did not curse them personally. Uh, Cain here is being cursed by God, cursed uh, from the earth, the soil. Cain was provided ample opportunity to repent, to turn to God, to cry out for forgiveness, to get his attitude right with the Lord, but he refused. He went his own way of rebellion. He killed his brother. Now he's got to pay for it. He's cursed from the ground because he polluted it with his brother's innocent, righteous blood. And that which once gave him much joy and pride from which he brought forth blessing to himself and his family, will now never yield its fruit to him again. When you reject God, that which you put, uh, put your, your pride in, your, your trust in, your ambition in, instead of God, is going to be taken away from you at some point in time. And then God says that this is what's going to happen to you he says, you have driven, or excuse me, he says uh, in verse 12, a fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. Well, what does that mean? <clears throat> well, that means he's going to be pushed out of his family. So all those relationships are cut off. He's not going to be able to make any uh, produce from the ground, so a means of, of living is cut off. And he's going to be a vagabond, uh, a wanderer on the earth. That, that's what is conveyed here, the idea of aimless wandering and perpetual exile. And out of verse 16, we read, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, further east of Eden. East is always movement away from God. Now he goes farther away from God. The word Nod means wandering, so he goes into a land of wandering for the rest of his life. What a somber picture of life for the unrighteous who refuse to confess their sins and come to God. They remain the seed of Satan. They're destined to walk through life with no hope and no purpose and no deep-seated joy, no blessing of fellowship with God until their days end. So where do you stand today? Are you living in the way of Cain? Do you diminish the worship of the Lord by wrong attitudes and token gifts to him? Do you depend on your own resources to see you through? Your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own production in life? Do you believe in God but show you're really not trusting him? Do you think you can successfully cover your sins and get away with not confessing them before a just and holy God? That's not the way that God intends for us to live. He wants you and I to confess our sins, to come to Christ and become the seed of the faithful by trusting him alone for salvation. The Bible always portrays two ways. The way of Cain, the way of unrighteousness, 
the broad way that leads to destruction, or the narrow way that leads to life, the way that Abel took, the way of Christ, the way of belief, the way of forgiveness, the way of eternal life. And you've got to make the choice which way you're going to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again today for the word of God that points out to us so clearly the way of the unrighteous in the life of Cain. And Lord, we do pray that there is no one here today who doesn't know which way they are on. And Lord, if someone has doubts about it, we pray, Lord, that you would help them to see uh, the doom of the pathway of Cain. There's only life in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray, Lord, that they would seek that. And Lord, for the rest of us, help us realize that we cannot go back to the way of the unrighteous. And when we do fail, fall, fall short, sin, that we need immediately to come to you and confess that and maintain our righteousness and our walk with you in the, in the path that leads to life. Lord, help us uh, not to go our own way. Help us to have the right attitude when we come to worship. Help us, Lord, to uh, realize our sin and confess it so that uh, you will not have to judge and chastise us. Lord, we're thankful, too, that even if that does happen, we can come back to you and be in right relationship and walk with you and make things right again, unlike what Cain did. So, Lord, use your word today to encourage our hearts and build our faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.